On this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, we provide an update on the latest news, including revised interpretive guidelines, and in our focus segment, discuss the 2020 review of Medicare's program oversight of accrediting organizations and list the top citations so far in 2022. Welcome to the AC Podcast with John Gailey, the longest-running podcast specifically focused on the freestanding ambulatory surgery industry. This episode is sponsored by Surgical Information Systems, providing cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers and ambulatory healthcare strategies, the nation's leading regulatory compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, please visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. Welcome to episode 158 of the ASC podcast with John Gailey for June 3rd, 2022, recording from our studio in Spencerport, New York. This is Sue Cronkite, Chief Researcher for the ASC podcast with John Gailey and Senior Nurse Consultant for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. The ASC regulatory environment is extremely dynamic and the material provided in this episode is based on information that is available as of the date of the recording. Joining me is John Gailey, the owner of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies and recognized as one of the nation's leading experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. Mr. Gailey is the author of over 10 books on the ASC industry and a frequent industry speaker on regulatory accreditation and finance issues. So we're back in the studio. We spent a good Four days here mm-hmm. last week as we were uh, yep. doing the uh, the spring director of nursing boot camps. So mm-hmm. uh, it was our first time back down here uh, since, since then. then. Yeah, <laughs> I think we've been trying to avoid the place, and, um, but uh, we we enjoyed uh, the conference obviously mm-hmm. quite a bit. But yes. it's a lot of time to spend in a uh, closed in room with no windows, mm-hmm. uh, with only a dog and a <laughs> microphone for company. But uh, uh, it is uh, nice to be back. We haven't mm-hmm. done an episode in a month now, so we have a lot of news to get yeah. caught up on. And uh, we've got a lot of good advice recently, by the way, from our conferences and from uh, emails from our listeners. So mm-hmm. we've got some good ideas for content coming out soon. And, of course, we have to give an update on Rosie, our golden retriever, who is uh, pregnant and going to be having puppies in uh, about uh, three weeks well, now. So. Yeah, a little less. June yeah. 20th. Oh, my goodness. She's got six or seven there. We don't know the exact number, but, yep. It's, uh, it seems like she's grown up in the studio here, too. <laughs> <laughs> so she'll probably give birth here. Yeah. Um, so let's, uh, let's get caught up on some of the recent news, Sue. Okay, so a case that we've talked about a few times, the Vanderbilt nurse, she ended up being convicted of criminally negligent homicide and abuse of an impaired adult. She was sentenced to three years probation, so she won't be serving any jail time. She's also going to be eligible for a diverted sentence, um, which means that the charges will be wiped off of her record in the future if she follows the terms of her probation. So I know a lot of people were kind of anxiously waiting to see if, if there would be jail time or or how that would turn out. Um, you know, it's been quite a topic of conversation yeah, and recently. Quite a bit of concern as to what it meant, you know, mm-hmm. to actually have a criminal uh, yes. uh, case brought against a, a nurse. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think 
uh, you know, given what happened, it seemed like this was probably the best outcome that could happen mm-hmm. for her. And, and losing her license. Her license right? I think that was an important piece of it. Yeah. But the criminal charges are, are what concern people. Just right. the, the effect it might have on, on anybody in the future, you know, coming forward with any mistakes that might be made that will lead to hopefully safer practices. So that's that's, I think, what was a concern. Well, and we're we're just all so concerned about, you know, the impact on the industry, trying to make sure that our nurses, you know, want to stay in the industry mm-hmm. and that we can recruit mm-hmm. new nurses, which really kind of gets, this is a good segue to your next uh, uh, item. Yes. That's right. Um, I saw an article on older workers are starting to come out of retirement. So the data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics show that more adults ages 65 and older had left the workforce in 2020 than in any year since the U.S. began tracking such information in 1948. And we know a lot of that had to do with burnout and with the pandemic and all of that. Um, And also many older workers had had a hard time competing in a tough job market before that. So now, though, there's such a shortage of workers that um, they may be a lot more likely to be able to find work. And some statistics are showing that older workers are beginning to return to work in large numbers similar to, to the early pandemic numbers, which is, you know, I, I think good news for people that are looking for workers. Now, whether this is due to financial issues or just the desire to feel more productive, it is a trend that could help with the staff shortages that many of you are, have been dealing with recently. And an added plus, I think, is the knowledge base that yeah. comes back with those experienced workers, nurses and techs and everybody that kind of, quote unquote, brain drain that it happened when so many experienced people were leaving the workforce. And, you know, the problems that come with an experienced staff training new staff, where it just leads to more and more problems with patient safety and staff satisfaction with their jobs. You know, when you got somebody that's been in the job for two years and they're training right. the next set of, of new workers. So, you know, it might be worth checking in on any retired nurses that you know or any staff members that had recently retired and see if they're having a change of heart. That might be an untapped pool of workers. Well, I think also the, the increase in salaries, uh, which is unfortunately for our finances mm-hmm. in the ASCs, but uh, fortunate for those that are seeking jobs, there might be another driver of people coming back. Yeah. I, I think another concern that I've had is the high turnover rate. You know, younger generation, I don't, I hate to make mm-hmm. generalizations, but the younger generation tends not to stay in a given mm-hmm. job as long as uh, some of the older people yeah. or uh, more experienced people have. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that has kind of worked against older workers before because people think, well, if you're, you know, nearing retirement age, we may only get three, four years out of you, but you may only get that from a younger nurse. And even if you get a couple of years of that experience, they're able to pass on so much of that knowledge that it's worth it for a year or two just to, to, you know, make make use of that and and get some newer people trained in the right way. So, yeah, it hopefully can be helpful. The trend will continue. Yes. And wanted to mention that June 8th is National Timeout Day. According to AORN, there's been an increase in wrong site surgeries over the past three years. Um, so that's, you know, an important thing to start looking at. Maybe double check, make sure your timeouts are going smoothly and that they're complete, that everybody's paying attention. The AORN site has posters and other resources for you to um, improve your timeouts. And I just wanted to quickly have a, a short discussion on on what is a complete and thorough uh, timeout. So you'll want to, first off, make sure, as I said, that everybody's paying attention, everybody stops what they're doing and, and really listens. Um, you'd say the correct patient identity, the correct procedure, correct side and site, um, 
make sure there's agreement on the procedure to be done. You know, maybe people either answer back or, you know, make sure people are educated to speak up if it doesn't sound right to them. Um, the availability of any kind of special equipment or implants and if applicable, that the patient is in the, the correct position. Also, I think if there's anybody else in the room that everybody's not familiar with, you'll want to mention that. Yeah, and that's something I've been kind of harping on recently, uh, especially with some of our newer centers where people are, you know, don't know the whole team. Mm-hmm. Uh, or if there is a vendor in the room, yeah. uh, you know, you want to make sure that they're acknowledged. And certainly on a survey, you want to acknowledge that a, a surveyor is in there. Um, so I, I this seems to be an ongoing problem. So I think, Sue, as you said, it, it bears a good conversation mm-hmm. uh, about it in your organization as you prepare for a survey. I remember a couple Years ago, we had a, a center that the uh, uh, the medical director said that she uh, she refused really to do a good timeout. Mm-hmm. She said, "Don't worry, on the day of the survey, I'll do it." And of course, on the yeah. day of the survey, she, it was her room, mm-hmm. and she didn't do it. You yeah. know, it's just something that you have to get into a yeah. habit. And I have so many other stories about you know what can happen as a result of a bad timeout. So this is extremely important. I know doctors seem to be frustrated about it, but you know, a good doctor is going to understand the importance of doing this. And just another quick conversation about shortages. We've been hearing a lot about yeah, um, the issues. fluids. You know, things as simple as as normal saline. Um, contrast dye is another one that, that I think is in quite short supply. Um, lidocaine, I've heard some senders mm-hmm. complaining about. I, I'm not sure if everybody's familiar with, you know, the FDA has an extended use database um, that we can we can probably drop the link. We'll drop the link in, in yeah. And quoting from the FDA site, based on stability data provided by the manufacturers and reviewed by the FDA, the following extended use dates are supported for specific lot numbers indicated in the searchable table below. Providers and patients that have the lot number in stock will be able to use them through the corresponding new use dates. To help with supply. However, if replacement product becomes available during the extension period, then the agency expects the lots in these tables will be replaced and properly disposed of as soon as possible. So, again, it's a searchable database. So, if you have something that's expiring and you can't replace it, then you know you can look and see if it is one that you can just kind of make a note of the of the new um, expiration date. But again, you have to, you can't just say, okay, well now I'm good for that next year or whatever it is. You have to keep looking. And if you can find a replacement, you have to replace it. And, and do put a sticker on anything that is outdated saying, you know, see extended data, extended mm-hmm. date, and then make sure that that list is available somewhere close to where those supplies are kept. Yeah. Yeah. So we do have another uh, quality, safety, and oversight memo. Uh, we seem to be getting a lot of these lately, Sue, so it's almost a regular segment on our <laughs> our program. So this new QSO uh, has to do – it's actually uh, um, uh, an ex- updated guidance for Appendix L, the Statement of Operations Manual. Um, and this one is a pretty extensive uh, update. This uh, update – is a series of adjustments or changes that are going to be made to uh, an upcoming edition of the interpretive guidelines. So for the present time, until they actually republish the whole interpretive guidelines, the information in this QSO is going to be uh, used by surveyors when they are doing a survey. And of course, it's useful to surgery centers as they uh, try to identify how to comply with various conditions for coverage. Mm -hmm. So there's quite a number of areas. I'm going to go through some of the most pertinent ones. We're going to put a link in the show notes here so that you can go in and 
and read through the whole thing. And I do encourage you to read through it and keep a copy of it available to you because the surveyors will be using it. So the first area is that they adjusted was the definition of an ASC. And they updated, they gave some minor clarifications to the guidance for sharing space. And what they were particularly focused on is the life, life safety code implications of sharing sp- space. And this is what it said. If the ASC is located in a building that is shared with other entities, the ASC must be physically separated from the other tenants by walls with at least one hour fire resistance rating in accordance with NFPA. And life safety code requirements, if state licensure requires walls with more than one hour fire resistance rating, the ASC, of course, has to comply with the more stringent requirement. The fact that the ASC is permitted to use the same spaces, other entities at different times, does not mean that the ASC is relieved of its obligation to comply with the physical separation, fire alarm, and other applicable requirements of the NFPA. So what they're talking about here is reminding you that if you're going to use a temporal separation, as Mm -hmm. some organizations do, that is, you're a surgery center at some times and maybe a practice at other times, Mm -hmm. and you have to follow the more stringent CMS and NFPA rules, which I think everybody knows, but they're trying to be more specific. Mm -hmm. Then it went on to say, if an ASC occupies a separate space within a building that is also occupied by another healthcare facility that is subject to more stringent life safety code requirements, for example, in a hospital, the wall separating the ASC may require more than a one-hour fire resistance rating. So I think that was just really a clarification. Again, I don't think it's adding anything new that we hadn't seen before. But this is some additional information regarding the periodic notice uh, to the hospitals. You might remember that a couple years ago there was an added requirement that surgery centers have to notify a local hospital mm-hmm. uh, about their existence so that they can be prepared to take care of a patient. And this was in response to uh, the change in the rules that removed the requirement at a CMS level of mm-hmm. having a uh, a transfer, transfer agreement, yeah. right. So it's meant to simplify things, but right. it doesn't always work that way. That's right, exactly. <clears throat> so now they did clarify the, it as follows. The ASC mm-hmm. is required to periodically provide the local hospital with written notice of its operations and patient population served. And communication between the ASC and the local hospital is important to assure that hospitals are aware of the potential for receiving patient transfers from the ASC. And then CMS recommends the written notice be provided upon opening of the ASC and at least every 24 months. And that that, that finally interprets what they mean by periodic. Yeah, that is actually very useful because yeah. I know we really question what, what exactly do you mean by periodic. That's Right. Not and I think clear. we were kind of interpreting it 12 months, but uh, yeah, 24 so months better. is, is mm-hmm. good. Uh, so at least every 24 months to ensure the ASC keeps the local hospital informed and up to date uh, on ASC information and any pertinent patient population changes. So why don't you talk about what the written notice must include, which, of course, is is good. It provides Mm -hmm. us more guidance. So it must include information concerning the ASC's operations. For example, this would include the ASC's name, address, hours of operation, the administrator's name, and contact information for any follow-up questions. And so that would have to be kept up to date if that changes So you'd have to notify more Mm -hmm. frequently than every 24 Mm -hmm. months. And patient populations served by the ASC. This would include but it's not limited to surgical specialties and whether the ASC sees adult and or pediatric patients. The written notice must be provided to the local hospital electronically or through the mail. The ASC should maintain copies of their notices to demonstrate that they're providing such notices periodically is required by regulation. Because I know that you don't always get a response back right. from the hospital, so that's a way to prove that, As a matter that fact, they, they did get it. You really don't. You don't receive yeah. a response. Yeah. <laughs> um, while, while a transfer agreement between the local hospital and the ASC is no longer required by regulation, communication between the hospital and ASC is encouraged. 
encouraged. It should also be noted that transfer agreements may be required by state law for licensure purposes, and providing the local hospital with written notice does not preclude those ASCs and hospitals with functioning working relationships to continue to have written transfer agreements as previously required by the conditions for coverage. And should an ASC have an existing transfer agreement in place with a local hospital, this could meet the requirement for the written notice so long as the agreement contains the required information regarding the ASC's operations and patient population as noted in the regulation. So So that's that's pretty significant. Mm -hmm. What it says is if you do have a transfer agreement, you're not going to have to send that every Mm 24-month notification as long as... The transfer agreement includes all the elements that you you listed, Sue, earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that could help uh, negate, you know, some of the complexity of this or s- some of the additional requirements yeah. that kind of popped up as a result of this new regulation. And additionally, even if all of the operating physicians within the ASC have admitting privileges at the local hospital, written notice is still required as per the regulation. And I do want to mention... Make sure, depending whether, you know, it's based on your state or your accrediting organization, um, that they don't have still the requirement to have a transfer agreement. Some some states or accrediting agencies might still have that. Yeah, and that's going to be a theme that we're going to talk about throughout this uh, new QSO mm-hmm. here is that, again, always remember the state regulations, if they're more stringent, can trump the CMS regulations. Mm-hmm. Then it went on to anesthetic risk and evaluation. And what they were doing here is they just revised some tag numbering and added guidance based on the regulation change to allow a physician or anesthetist to examine the patient to evaluate the risk of anesthesia. And then under fire building and fire and building safety, they added guidance on several tags to align with the regulatory changes and the adoption of the 2012 editions of the Life Safety Code and Healthcare Facilities Code. So that was just some language changes to kind of make it uh, uh, much clearer. Uh, moving on to medical records, it clarified language related to the medical rec- record systems and confidentiality of uh, clinical records. And what it kind of indicated here is that just reminding people that CMS does not dictate a time frame for keeping medical records. That would happen mm-hmm. in other parts of the regulations, but CMS itself uh, doesn't actually tell you a time frame such as seven years or five okay. years, et cetera. Uh, and it also reminded you that there is no specific format for the medical record, simply that you're required to have a medical record that has a certain number of elements, but doesn't tell you what the format should be, nor does it actually tell you whether it should be an EMR or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, infection control a number of changes there. It added clarifications related to the reporting of infection control breaches that could potentially expose patients to the blood or bodily fluids of another. So what it's really saying here is that certain infection control breaches, including but not limited to medication injection practices and disinfection and sterilization of medical devices and equipment, pose a risk of bloodborne pathogen transmission that may warrant engagement of public health authorities to conduct a risk, risk assessment and if necessary, to implement the process of patient notification. So what this is saying is that Mm -hmm. if a surveyor during a survey finds an infection control breach of this magnitude, uh, it becomes their responsibility to notify the the local authorities that there might need to be some additional follow-up. So it it really shows how important and, 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 and how seriously CMS has taken any infection control breaches at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, of course, that would be an immediate jeopardy situation also, most assuredly. Moving on to patient assessment and admission, 
Um, the new QSO added guidance addressing the regulatory change, the history and physical requirements. This is already getting questions because we, I, I, I mean, after this QSO came out, I immediately got emails from people yep. <laughs> asking me if this means that no, that a, mm -hmm. that uh, HMPs are no longer required, yeah. and uh, of no. course that's not the case <laughs> at all. So it did say the following: ASCs must develop and maintain a policy that identifies those patients who require an HMP prior to surgery. No specific list of surgical procedures or patient types is specified in the conditions for coverage. Instead, the ASC is expected to determine which patients will require an H&P, including the time frame for completion, and develop policies to ensure those patients re receive the H&P prior to surgery. Policies must address certain patient characteristics that may necessitate the need for examination and testing prior to surgery. And these factors include, but are not limited to, why don't you just list them, sure. Sue? Uh, patient age, considering the need for HMPs based on pediatric, adult, or geriatric age differences, um, what their diagnosis is, the type and number of procedures scheduled to, to be performed on the same surgery date, known com comorbidities such as um, cardiac or pulmonary disease, and the planned anesthesia level, whether, you know, minimal sedation versus general anesthesia. And I always think, I know we go back to the um, legal aspects a lot, but, you know, you, you want to be sure that you're able to defend this if something ever happens, that you weren't doing it out of convenience, that you really thoroughly thought this out and talked yeah. it out among your doctors to make sure that they truly weren't put at risk by not having that history and physical. In many cases, you still will have to. Yeah, and I, I see a lot of citations coming down the pike here, I think, uh, mm -hmm. if, with people that uh, get so excited about removing the um, um, the the requirement and that yeah. going through and doing everything that, that you just listed above. Um, and it did go on to say that the ASC's H&P policy must include the time frame for the examination to be be completed prior to surgery. And it noted there's no one-size-fits-all approach to the time frame for H&P completion. Although no longer required by the regulation, the ASC is not precluded from retaining in its policies the previous time frame requirement of 30 days. Uh, and the current regulation allows ASCs to self-impose restrictions and allows all affected ASC providers to retain current restrictions for the same categories of surgery. It is important to note that the state law may have specific time frame requirements for ASCs to consider, as well as many, if not most, of the accreditation organizations already uh, do require that 30-day time frame. Mm -hmm. Now, some of them are reconsidering that right now, but you do have to keep up to date on that before you end up with a, a citation. And then remember, policy development must be based on nationally recognized standards of practice and guidelines, as well as any applicable state and local health and safety laws. Consideration should also be given to information on HMP recommendations from specialty societies and medical literature. So as you're putting together these policies and procedures, it's important to note that you're going to have to support that with literature, you know, do a literature search to identify what your national organizations have said. So that was a lot of news. Um, why don't we uh, take a short break? And when we come back, we're going to go through the, the 2020 report to Congress. This is going to get confusing, Sue, because it's a 2020 report yes. that was issued in 2021 <laughs> with 2019 we're talking data. about now. <laughs> yes, uh, but we're going to talk about uh, the Medicare program oversight of the accrediting organizations. The a uh, accrediting organizations are rated on an annual basis by OIG. Uh, and then we're also going to talk about some of the top items that have been cited uh, mm -hmm. So let's uh, take that short break and we'll be right back.
Our listener patron program, also known as ASC Central, has really taken off over the past 12 months, and we are so grateful to all of our over 100 members. Our patron members help support our efforts here on the podcast and get a number of great benefits also. The ASC Podcast with John Gailey is the longest-running podcast dedicated exclusively to the ASC industry. ASC Central provides members with a wealth of management tools and resources, including regular members-only Zoom sessions with John and other members to discuss relevant topics, quarterly Zoom meetings where we update patron members with important issues in the ASC industry, periodic study sessions for leaders that are planning on taking the CASC or CAPE exam, and access to a large database that includes federal regulations, interpretive guidelines, and the state regulations, checklists for administrators and nurse managers, example meeting minute templates, example policies and procedures, budgeting and financial projection tools, risk assessments and example forms, and much, much more. Members also get discounts on books written by John Gailey, ranging from $10 to $80 per book, and can even schedule a personalized mock survey with John and save over $1,000. For more information and to access this additional content, please visit ASCPodcast.com or ASC-Central.com. So we had another uh, quality and safety oversight report, number 22-06-AO-CLIA, uh, and this was entitled the FY 2020 Report to Congress on the Review of Medicare's Program Oversight of Accrediting Organizations and the Clinical Laboratory Improvement Amendments of 1988 Validation Program. So just a little bit of background. The Social Security Act requires a performance evaluation of each of the CMS-approved accreditation organizations to verify that the accredited provider entities demonstrate compliance with the Medicare conditions for coverage. What they mean here is that once you get permission by CMS to become an accrediting organization that can do deemed status surveys, they want to make sure that you're actually following the rules on this. And the CMS Annual Report to Congress, or the RTC, details the review, validation, and oversight of the accrediting organization Medicare Accreditation Program. And the 2020 report uh, compares the disparity rates for 2017 to 2019, and it is broken down by health and safety disparities and physical environment disparities. So a disparity is when uh, a validation survey is performed after a deemed status accreditation survey is done, and there is a difference between the findings in the validation survey and the actual accreditation survey. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to go through the uh, the top three accrediting organizations and what the findings were with regard to the disparities. So we'll start with the Joint Commission. The Joint Commission actually had the lowest disparities across the board in 2019 and demonstrated considerable improvement over the prior three years. Their health and safety disparity was 14% in 2019, and the physical environment was 10%. And these represent, as I mentioned, considerable improvement from 2018 uh, in the physical environment. HHC was in the middle uh, with health and safety disparity of 31% in 2019 and a physical environment of 13%. The health and safety disparity is relatively unchanged, and their physical environment has improved considerably from 2018. And Quad ASF continues to have the lowest ratings with a health and safety disparity of 33% in 2019 and physical environment of 33%. And this uh, represents a considerable improvement in the health and safety category over 2018 and, unfortunately, an increase in the disparity for physical environment. Wow. Those are some big numbers. Uh, Now, is this just 
is this ASCs or is this across the board? Uh, it's a good question. I, and I had to go through the report. I had to read through the whole mm-hmm. many page report, <laughs> and I pulled out only the ASC category. Okay. Uh, the the uh, report also had a lot of great data about the most common condition level deficiencies, and uh, it, so I'll, I'll go through them. The top one was environment of care, and, and again, that's a trend that we are finding across the board now. Is that the top citations right now continue to be in life safety and environment? Yeah, and what they found is that in during the validation surveys, there were 19 incidents where. Uh, environment was cited, and unfortunately, 10 of those were missed by the accrediting organization. The second category, second highest category, was infection control, which had 17 citations uh, that were cited by the the state uh, state agency, and 11 of them were missed by the accrediting organization. Mm -hmm. Third was governing body and management, 13 citations, nine missed by the accrediting organization. Fourth was quality assessment and performance improvement, six citations, four missed by the accrediting organization. And last of the top five Mm -hmm. was uh, surgical services at four recognized by the state agency and two missed by the accrediting organization. So those are not very good numbers. I mean, and Mm -hmm. and, uh, kind of disappointing uh, that uh, that we're still experiencing these problems with the accrediting organizations Mm -hmm. and just something that you need to keep in mind. And this, Sue, constant arguments we have with clients, especially new ones, where Mm -hmm. they say, oh, we've never been cited for that. They won't cite us this time. And this is why you might very well be cited in the future, recognizing Mm -hmm. that CMS is really coming down hard on the accrediting organizations to get to do better surveys moving forward. Mm -hmm. And Um, they're going to change the way that they that they do the backup checks on them as well. They've been coming, I don't know, what do they normally come within, okay, 30 days, and, and they're going to start, I believe, Sometimes coming right along with them, so you'll have the whole crowd there all at once. Yeah, we mentioned this before, and how excited all the surveyors will be (laughs) about. uh, And just imagine, you know, you're on a you're uh, uh, your your surveyors show up with uh, Mm -hmm. two people, and then three more trapes in from the state at the same time to perform the survey. So, yeah, not something that's favorable. For fiscal years 2017 to 2019, 197 ASC validation surveys were performed and 358 life safety categories were cited by the state agencies. So that, again, shows how Mm -hmm. many citations are showing up in the life safety area. And the type, the top three cited areas in life safety for 2019 were were as follows in order. Construction, which would be things like ratings on walls and doors where uh, there was either no rating or that the incorrect rating on the, mm-hmm. the, uh, the wall or door. Glass doors and windows, we, we tend to have a lot of issues we hear about because people love the look of them, but they're not always uh, compliant. Right. And and that's been, uh, in the past, there were organizations that had a waiver for that, mm-hmm. and most of those waivers are gone now. So again, if you have a glass wall coming into your surgery center that is actually a firewall, that is likely, very likely to be cited moving forward. Uh, the second top cited area was smoke barriers. We know this one. You know, every time you uh, look at smoke barriers, you see, you know, penetration mm-hmm. through them, no matter how careful you are before yeah. the surveyors show up. And the third, which was a surprise to me, but not that much of a surprise is fire drills or the mm-hmm. failure to do fire drills or the failure to do a complete fire drill. Mm-hmm. Do uh, a nice write-up and a scenario-based right. and make sure you're staggering the times, all that kind of thing, pulling the... The fire alarm. Yeah. 
So Sue just mentioned the, the critical elements there. <laughs> Pull the fire alarm. Make sure all of your mm-hmm. people are, are participating. Don't do it at the end of the day when nobody's there. Yeah. Uh, make sure that you have physicians um, involved in it also. Mm-hmm. Uh, and write up a scenario. It has to be a scenario like the fire started in the trash can in the post-op mm-hmm. area. Uh, at least one a year has to be in the uh, in the operating room area, the the surgical suite, uh, and and there has to be a very complete write up as to what you found. In other words, like an analysis mm-hmm. uh, of the uh, of the fire drill and what was learned from the fire drill. And mm-hmm. um, so again, all of those things are critical. And if you don't have them in a fire drill, you will be cited for it. And then top five condition level items cited in complaint surveys. So they did uh, validation surveys on complaint surveys also. And the top five areas in order were infection control, governing body, environment, surgical services, and QAPI. No surprise there that infection control is at the top. If somebody's going to complain, I I would imagine a lot of times patients might might have found, especially during COVID, a, Mm -hmm. a not so favorable situation when they visited the surgery center. Yeah. And then, Sue, I also, uh, thanks to an article that Kara uh, Newbury at ASC, at ASCA had, uh, had done recently on uh, the commonly cited areas, uh, I followed the links that she had in her article mm-hmm. and uh, did a little bit of research myself. I just thought it would be kind of interesting to look at, at what's happening right now. So for the, uh, for citations in 2022, um, I, uh, I, I pulled the top 10 citations in both health and safety and in environment. So here they are in order. Uh, the first one is sanitary environment, which was cited uh, 20.6% of the time in surveys. That's kind of scary, isn't it? That sanitary environment, that would be, you know, kind of infection control type issues uh, in uh, in the environment itself, in other words. Yeah. And I suspect that might have something to do with COVID and, mm-hmm, you know, whether mm-hmm. they were maintaining everything properly there. The second most cited area was administration of drugs at 16% of surveys having uh, issue with administration of drugs. And I would imagine that would be like labeling of the drugs uh, or mm-hmm. uh, drawing up uh, multi-dose yeah. properly. Mm-hmm. And again, unfortunately, Sue, we can't drill down to the actual citations themselves. All we know is the categories. Yeah, here. whether they're talking about, you know, cleaning in the top of the, the no. medication vial or right. what, but we just... No so general I, I still think it's useful, but mm. uh, the third uh, most highly uh, categorized item was infection control program. Uh, mm. So this is the program element side, and 14.7% of the uh, surveys found a problem here. Yeah. And what that would mean is that your program was incomplete, it wasn't updated, you didn't take into consideration you know, the COVID changes that had occurred, et cetera. The fourth category is form and content of the record, and about 10.7% of the surveys mm-hmm. found a problem here. And that would be like, you know, missing signatures, not having an immediate uh, post-op note, for example, when it would be required, not signing off on a pathology, et cetera. Uh, the fifth category, which is going to be confusing, is physical environment. So even though we're talking about health and safety, they're talking about the physical environment here. So what it would what happened here is most likely would be things like, uh, you know, the not enough space for activities or things that were found by the health and safety surveyors that were also found by life safety Mm -hmm. surveyors. And that was in 7.3% of the time. And the sixth category is uh, safety from fire uh, with 6.9%. And that could be even, you know, not having uh, fire drills, not having training in Mm -hmm. fire drills. uh, Or not having fire extinguishers that were immediately available for uh, to put out a fire. 
The next one was standard level tag for surgical services. Not quite sure what that means, but it means that that particular area of surgical services, which would include things like making sure the H&P was performed uh, within the, the, you know, the appropriate time frame, as we just talked about yeah, with all those changes. And the next category was environment. Not quite sure what that means. Unfortunately, I couldn't drill any further. Uh, but again, soon notice how physical environment, safety from fire, uh, you know, and environment that keeps showing up in the top mm -hmm. 10 list here mm -hmm. as, as issues. The next category is infection control in general, and those would be breaches or, uh, you know, failure to, to wash hands, et cetera. The next one was a, kind of a surprise, organization and staffing. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if that's a product of what's happening right now with mm -hmm. our, our organizations having a hard time finding enough staff or being Probably. able to train, you know, the staff in 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 a timely basis. Mm -hmm. uh, so organization staff it would include training and education of the staff. And the the last one that we'll talk about is infection control program and direction. And this most likely and that was in about three point six percent of the surveys. And this would be like not having a, a um trained uh coordinator mm -hmm. for your infection control program. Uh, and let's just remind everybody that we do have a training program for infection control coordinators uh, that's available on our, our website at ASCPodcast.com if anybody is looking to train their uh, nursing staff on how to do that. And then we move on to life safety, and we'll just look at the top citations in the life safety area. The top one, as we've talked about extensively, is electrical systems and the essential electrical system. And this would be, uh, for example, not having a, a generator uh, with the three branches if, you have, if you're doing um, general anesthesia, uh, not having a type 1 system, in other words, uh, not having the regular testing performed of that generator, uh, doing those uh, load bank tests, et cetera. So again, we're seeing this on a lot of our surveys right now, unfortunately, especially those organizations that have older facilities with older mm -hmm. generator sets. Second category was sprinkler system maintenance and testing. And this is simply uh, people are just not you know, following up on the proper intervals with regard to the sprinkler system testing. Mm -hmm. I saw that first one, the electrical systems, that was 15.5%, right? Of the, of the surveys had mm -hmm. it right. Sprinkler system was 14.7%. Thank you, Sue, for keeping mm -hmm. me on track here. The next one was fire alarm system, which is a 13.5%. That's always been one of the higher categories here, mm -hmm. people forgetting to do the fire alarm testing. Or I think what sometimes happens there is if the building is doing your fire alarm testing, they don't have the records yeah. from the building on how to do that. Uh, the next category was fire drills. Again, it shows up both in the life safety category and in the health and uh, safety category, uh, not doing proper fire drills. That showed up in 9.6% of the surveys. Hazardous areas enclosure. This would be closing in, uh, making sure you have the proper rating for hazardous areas. That showed up in 8.8%. Emergency lighting, that showed up in 7.6%. This is most likely, you know, the regular testing of the emergency lights, making mm -hmm. sure the emergency lights work. Sue, I did a survey, a mock survey a couple days ago where I went in and I tested the, the emergency lights. And the person that was following was the guy that did the monthly testing of it. And none of the emergency lights that I tested worked. Mm -hmm. He was doing the testing incorrectly. Yeah. Uh, so, again, make sure somebody not only is doing the testing, but is actually testing it properly. The next category was electrical systems maintenance and testing. Uh, and that would most likely be just making sure you have records of all the electrical system testing items, such as, uh, you know, testing your uh, circuit breakers, testing the GFI circuits. That, that's been popping up a lot lately, is that if you look at a lot of your GFI outlets, it actually says test monthly. 
And, mm. you know, if it says test monthly, you should have records of it being tested monthly. So I suspect that's what's popping up there. Maintenance, inspection, and testing of doors, that showed up in 6.4%. That's that new regulation that came out in 2017 that required regular uh, annual testing of the uh, the fire doors. Uh, the next category was multiple occupancies, 6.4%. I would assume that that means that in multiple occupancy buildings, maybe you didn't have the fire pull station mm-hmm. within your organization or if there were some violations uh, outside of the or facility. Uh, for example, some of our centers are in a uh, building where other tenants also are in, and you have to test the lights going all the way out to the uh, the uh, the public area. Mm-hmm. Um, so that means that you got to test the lights, the emergency backup lights, not only in your facility, but in the hallways going to the exits. Uh, and that's been showing up in quite a number of surveys lately. Portable fire extinguishers and showed up in 6.0%, probably meaning the annual testing or the monthly testing. And the last item in that we'll talk about is uh, six point six point zero percent subdivision of building spaces and smoke barriers, meaning having the proper uh, fire rating for those smoke barriers in those mm-hmm. areas. Wow, that was a lot to go over. Hopefully, that give you a good idea and a checklist of things that you should be looking at. We'll put references into more information in each of these categories. So let's take a short break. We'll come back and we'll talk about some upcoming events. In this segment, we provide an update on our upcoming virtual conferences and upcoming speaking engagements for John and his staff and other events in the ASC industry. So uh, the next one coming up is June 7th and 8th. The New Jersey Association's annual conference is going to be at the Hilton East Brunswick, and I'll be speaking on succession planning. And uh, since, uh, unfortunately, due to some unforeseen circumstances, Ann Geyer is not going to be able to be there, and I'll be doing her presentation on staff development. In the 2022 Colorado Ambulatory Surgery Center Association's Conference and Trade Show is June 9th in Denver, Colorado. And the Gulf States ASC Conference will be June 15th through 17th at the Ritz-Carlton in New Orleans. Sponsored by the ASC Associations from Alabama, Louisiana, and Mississippi. And Ann Geyer is uh, going to be speaking at that conference. And then uh, we have announced the uh, upcoming August 2022 Administrator Boot Camp, which will start on August 30th. And it's going to go for four days. And just like all of our boot camps, will be uh, a four-day virtual conference with mentoring, uh, copies of all of the uh, materials as well as the books, and access to the recordings for about six months after the conference is over. So uh, these boot camps are becoming very popular. We have over 130 graduates now, Sue, mm-hmm. of these boot camps over the last two and a half years that we've been doing this. So very excited about continuing on with our administrator boot camp. And again, that starts on August 30th. For more information, visit ASCpodcast.com. And the California Ambulatory Surgery Association's annual conference and exhibits is September 7th through the 9th at the Hyatt Regency Indian Wells Resort and Spa in Indian Wells, California. And John will be doing a finance boot camp. That's right. So looking forward to that. So hopefully you'll be coming out with me and we'll Mm -hmm. have, uh, maybe we'll even do an extra couple days in the hot Palm Springs. It it is going to be very warm that time of year. Probably won't be outside much, but... And then in September 15th through 16th, the ASC Finance, Accounting, and Reimbursement Seminar will be presented virtually. And that's a, a, a joint project with Christina Benton. 
And, of course, don't forget about our recorded events, all available on ASCPodcast.com. And that includes the Credentialing Conference, the Fall 2021 Finance and Accounting Conference, a Conditions for Coverage Conference, a Great Medical Director Conference for your medical directors, and, of course, both the Director of Nursing and Administrator's Boot Camp self-paced version. So if you can't attend mm-hmm. the, the regular ones, you can also do a self-paced version. And I do want to remind everybody to become a patron member of the podcast. This program, also known as ASC Central, is an exclusive membership website that provides a one-stop ASC regulatory and accreditation compliance, operations, and financial management resource for busy administrators, nurse managers, and business office managers. And resources include some virtual conferences, links, policies, and procedures, forms, drills, and discounts on services and books and access to AEU credits. And we have over 150 patron members of our podcast at this point. So a lot of great opportunities. And, of course, the best opportunity is probably those Saturday drop-in sessions that we Mm -hmm. all know and love, uh, Saturday mornings, Eastern, uh, at 10 o'clock. Well, that's it for this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Galey. And please spread the word about our podcast with your friends and colleagues and do us the honor of hitting that subscribe button. The sound editor for this episode is Susan Cronkite. Executive producer is John Galey. Research assistance is provided by our team at Ambitory Healthcare Strategies. Sue Cronkite, Jenna Alvarez, Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman, Zach Calaritis, Amy Germano, Lori Rodericks, and Ann Geyer. Music is provided by Media Sushi and Mike Noah. And the ASC Podcast with John Galey is hosted on Podbean and is available on all major podcast channels. We would like to thank our sponsors, Surgical Information Systems, providing cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers and Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, the nation's leading regulatory compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. This podcast has been an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as nor does it constitute legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. If you're interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCPodcast.com. We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com. <laughs>